this thing that I think many of us struggle with, this idea of not being good enough, just not being good enough. Many of us have that going on in the back of our heads. We call it imposter syndrome. We call it whatever you want to call it, right? But it's this idea of being like the outsider. So for me, it was always a drive to bring people into my circle. I'm very expansive. I'm just like, come on in, you too, you too, come in. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything about your lifestyle, every decision you've ever made, but I don't have to do that. So in order to be able to include you and bring you around the table to say, you matter, you belong here. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today's guest wrote a book called The Art of Caring Leadership. She believes that employees are more than just numbers or cogs in a machine. Those that we lead should be respected and empowered. As all of our listeners know, our podcast is about mental toughness, resilience, and grit. You may be wondering how this all connects. Let's explore how caring leadership relates to resilience from someone who has interviewed dozens of people on this topic and has her own story of resilience to share with all of you. Please welcome Heather Younger from right here in Denver to The Forge. Heather, we're so glad to have you on the show today. I just want to jump right in and talk about your new book. Uh, You define caring leadership as taking daily actions in ways that show concerns and kindness for those that we lead, right? Very important things for any of us that are leaders, or as Ron and I say, everyone's a leader. So this is perfect for each of us. But why is this area of research so intriguing to you? Like, why did you uh, set out to write this book now? Well, I would say that it it just, it it was the time, it was impetus, like everything needed to just happen now. But I I've always thought this was important. I've managed teams and led people for a very long time. And I've seen the disconnect between leaders and the people that they lead so much so that people came to me on, on whether they were on my team or not, asking about what was happening with their leader, just not understanding how people, not trying to decipher actions and reactions to things, trying to decipher lack of communication and not understanding. And so I just knew I had to be the person. I worked at a company And there was a merger that took place, a merger of five companies. And I was kind of smack dab in the middle of it. I felt myself really being drugged down by it. To be honest, the culture was going downhill. Mistrust was growing. And I was leading customer experience at the time. I went to the head of HR for the Denver office because, again, there were five five different uh, offices. And and I said, you know, something we have really got to do something about the mistrust, something about our engagement. It's just awful. And she said, you're right. You should go do something about that. And I'm like... Okay, I'm leading customer experience, but okay, like, you know what, this, this is a pure example of why, why it's not owned by one department, right? It's whoever has the energy and the stamina to do it. So I, because I was already the person who uplifted people, I was already the person who always, you know, recognizing people around me, it made sense. So I went and created an employee engagement council and brought people together who were in the Denver office, but they were actually representative of all the different companies. And we were around the table. They had an openness to be better too and to get better. And so we you know, got around the table and started to think about how can we break down some of the walls? The, the mistrust that's forming is based upon a lack of awareness and knowledge and knowing who the people are, connection. So how can we grow that connection? And so we just started to kind of think about that. And over six months, we did multiple different activities, 
to try to bring people together so they could learn who each other is. And, and things did start to change. We felt it. It was kind of palpable. But then the merger didn't go very well. So that didn't go well, but the other part that I was working on did. And that's where I, I felt like my calling was to, to just be the person who is the voice for the people who don't have voice to the people who actually can change and, and improve the experience for those who, you know, who don't have the voice. And, and, and that's, that's the reason why I'm here today, one of the main reasons at least. This is uh, totally right up my alley. This is one of my degree programs, actually, organizational culture and, and development. So I t- I'm with you. And that was even years ago that it, it jumped onto my radar as well. But what about for right now? Did you know, did you specifically think, wow, culture and leadership is going to be so, so much more important coming out of this year, year and a half that we've spent working remote, working not only remote, but from home where it's made things a lot more challenging. Do you see, did you know that you were writing this book for that time period or did that just kind of happen to be coincidental? Nope, that with the plan was in place before COVID hit. It's the same thing that happened with my TED talk on transforming adversity into opportunity. I did the talk in 2019. I did it because I was sick of hearing people become victims of their own circumstances, and I could have easily been that. And so I just said, I'm doing it. I'm putting it out there because I'm sick of hearing the, com- the complaining and the blaming, and I'm just sick of it. Then all of a sudden, a year later, COVID happens, and everybody wants to talk about resilience. And because I had just done the talk, they're like, oh, you're the perfect person to do that. So I I wish I could tell you that I was more strategic in it. I've always thought that care and and concern and showing concern concern and kindness for those that we lead and for those who look to us for guidance, whether we have a title or not, has always been of utmost importance to me. It is my North Star. It is the thing I most value. So it just happened to be that it fell right during this time. It's funny you bring this up because I, as as I think all of our listeners know, I, I I'm a professor at the University of Colorado, and one of the the things that we talk about, I use an, a little bit outdated information. Two thousand, I think it was a 2013 Gallup poll said that 70 percent of workers are actively disengaged at work. I think it's improved a little bit with the newest uh, numbers that have come out. So I think we're heading in the right direction. But I come from a generation where it was thought of, you don't care for, I mean. Your personal life and who you are as a person is not important to how we do our job, right? As leaders, as managers, that was, it was like, leave that stuff at home. I don't want you bringing that to work. And I see a change in this where we're starting to see kind of, you know, along the lines of what you're doing with this book is, can we move those numbers? Can we get people to be more engaged at work if we just show that we care about them as a person? I mean, is that, uh, it, I mean, from all the research that you did, and I know you interviewed a lot of people on this, is that what you found as well? Is that, is that going to be something that, that is going to be a benefit by, by showing caring? Why should leaders care about their people? Yeah. You know, I, I decided to create the, this book on the art of caring leadership on care because it's such a nebulous concept. I mean, every single one of us will say multiple times in our life, I did that because he cared for me or she just does not care about me at all. Like we hear that care thing. And the problem is that if we don't name it, name it, name it in a way that's definitive, where people can point to an action that says this represents care, then it makes it, it continues, it makes it something that people can't even get their hands around. Who could ever aim for something, right? So in this regard, I wanted to put I wanted to put this framework together. It's nine behaviors that that if you express these, then you are considered a caring leader. And it was it was about 100 and 
70 people I've interviewed, 170 leaders I've interviewed, but keeping in mind that is with the backdrop of reading over 25,000 employee engagement survey comments, sitting in on hundreds of employee focus groups. So having that as the background and reconciling it with what I was hearing from the leaders who I was interviewing on my show, because it was on my Leadership with Heart podcast, that I met all these leaders. And I would, what I would do is say, okay, this is not about perfection. It's about continuous improvement. And it's not that all these leaders are perfect. It's the brilliance that they bring to the table is in the, in the ways, it's when they're not the best versions of themselves, but then like the epiphanies or the enlightenments that happen when they come out of it, it's that solution that happens. It's that, oh, it's a revelation of how can I be better? And that's what I was able to go, ah, right there, right there, right there. And every single time I would talk to them, it'd be like, oh, Right, that the right there. That's the difference, and it was that's the difference. And it was like taking it all and synthesizing it into the nine behaviors. So that's the work that was done. Yeah, it wasn't easy. People were like, "Well, how the heck did you do that? And how did you know?" To, I, that's just what I do, right? We all, we all. I think I'm kind of a sociologist at heart, <laughs> even though I don't have that as a background. My my background is political science and law. But it's just funny how in the end, that's what I'm. That's my gift. So, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. I love that you say that you go right there, there it is. And, and, yeah. and sometimes, I mean, it's that, I don't know, that epiphany that we get. And, and I've had those moments and it's so wonderful when it seems there's no clarity, right? And then all of a sudden it just comes into focus and you see it and you go, wow, there it is. And, and it's pretty exciting. So for, I, I think for everybody that, you know, stick with the grind because a lot of times that's where the, the good stuff comes. So true. And who would you say, Heather, who's this, who's the book for? You know, Ron and I, I, I said earlier that we we don't look at leaders. In fact, we teach this a lot. You know, everyone is a leader. And we, in fact, we just heard in a workshop recently from some, some business people that, well, I don't hold the position of leadership. So I, there's not a lot I can do. Who would you say this book is for? Is it just for the top leadership executives no, it is not. No. At the beginning of the book, I actually define who it's for. So I say, so it's those who manage even just one person. Actually, it's those who are leaders. Actually, it's those who consider themselves a leader. And that's and that's that. Like, I mean, so in my mind, you don't, if you don't see yourself as a leader because you don't have a title, that's a problem. So, so that in my mind, when I define it, even though when I'm talking about it and when you read it, it does sound like you need to have a certain level of authority. But I, I want people to think more expansively about that. Authority in the home, authority in the community, authority in the, your place of worship, right? So what I mean by that is, are you someone who looks to, to you, someone looks to you for guidance? They say, okay, I need, I need help getting directions to the bathroom inside your church. This sounds funny. I know this sounds, are you going to just say, yeah, it's over there somewhere? Or are you going to meet me where I'm at? And you're going to walk me over there to, to escort me there. Like there, these are, and that's, that might sound like service focus, but it, it's others focus. It's external focus. How are you in your own shoes taking responsibility for how you treat people? Do you show concern and kindness for anybody who's in your presence, irrespective of your or their title in life? And I think that's the key. And I, I actually kick myself a little bit because over we, we all know this, we grow as humans. So over time, this I probably I would say I've grown more during the pandemic. I probably all of us have, but my awareness has increased so much, so much more on so many points. I've connected so many dots during the pandemic. And after writing the book, I'm like, dang it. You know, I believe wholeheartedly because self-leadership is the first chapter in the book and it is the most robust chapter. 
uh, for a reason. Because I think that we all have to be like looking at our own selves and figuring out how congruent are we, how authentic are we? Do we help our own selves grow? How do we do to exercise self-care for ourselves? I always say that. But I wish I would have been even more expansive with caring. And so that it would be, you know, it's leading, leading that subtitle that it's, this is here, it was what it is, the art of caring leadership leading with heart uplifts teams and organizations. And what I would have, I, what I wish I would have done is made that subtitle more generic, like one that where it was, it was actually not just internal about organizations, because for me, it, it like I said, it is a North Star. So it's so important to me. I, I kick myself and kick, I can't even sleep if I feel like I haven't treated someone with, you know, with kindness and concern. So, and it's not even about like if they're my team member or not. But if they are my team member, yes, I do take even more of a, it's even more of a like, oh, shoot, did I tell them, thank, like, did I express thank you? Did I express appreciation for them because they did this thing that was like, did I, and I'm, con- and I'm doing it. And people at that job that I, that where the merger happened and the layoff took place, everything, the, the, pe- the manager would say, my cohort, my colleagues at the same level would be like, why, how do you have so much time to show so much appreciation? How do you have so much time to kind of exercise all this, exercise all this kindness to, to people? <laughs> And I'd say, well, how do you not? Like, I get way more done than you. Like, people want to do way more for me, and I want to do way more for them, and we're just doing a whole bunch of stuff together. Oh, so true. Right? right? Yeah. So it's just, it's funny how that works. So I so now as you say, you know, as you say it, and as I've been talking over this multiple podcasts, multiple different things, I realize that, you know, I I could have, I should have, that's a little failure on my part. I should have really gone even more general to say, listen, this is for you who are stay-at-home moms or dads. This is for you who are leading people in the community in any way, shape, or form. No, I didn't, forget about the title. Forget about the title. Because if you think about it, someone's just like willing to kind of listen to you. It's, it's What kind of influence do you have? Are you influencing people? It's very, so to me, it's very big, but it's gotten bigger and bigger over the years for me. So I'm going to be honest, because my first book was fully about just people who supervise people. The second one has that element, but I do define that it's for anybody who thinks that they lead people, who, anybody who thinks they lead anybody. If you are a leader, irrespective of title, this book's for you. So and I love that you said influencer, right? If you are an influencer and that can be mom and dad at home. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. Anybody we interact with, right. In life, we, we have some power yes. of influence over them. And I think a lot of people don't realize, I always say to my students, people are watching, you know, the people are watching how you, you show up in the world, how you, you know, conduct your, your business and, and that matters. And I, I think that, you said it so well, Heather, that we're all, in some sense, we're, we're leaders in some way. And I love the simple, you know, the, the example you used of, of showing someone to the restroom, that, you know? So just daily actions like that, you can step into leadership. So I hope, I hope we've made our point clear with, with the leaders or for the listeners that we're all leaders. You know, I, I love that you say, you know, sometimes I get pushback when, when I try to push this agenda, especially with people in the business world. They say, well, what's my you know ROI on this? What's my return on investment for investing in my people like this? I don't have time for this. And you said it so well. It's like a, it's like a perpetual machine, right? It feeds off itself. Yeah, it, it, it is extra work. I don't think we can gloss over that, but it comes back to you, right? I mean, you kind of you made that, that point clear that, that It'll pay off. It'll pay off. And it will show up in, in the bottom line. So for all the business leaders, I hope they, they get that. Let's go to, Heather, let's talk about, if you're comfortable, let's talk about, you talk about resilience in your, your childhood. You had, quite honestly, as I, as I was reading through your book, you had a childhood that was tough, I would, I would assume. I mean, as I was reading it, it made me tense. And so 
Can you share with the leaders or with our listeners a little bit about what was that like for you? I mean, I, like I was, like I said, even the Ted talk, that was actually only half the story. And so there, I also had a lot of, there was some drug addiction going on in my family as well at the same time. So I, and I'm the only child. So I was kind of going through that and this other stuff. So what, what they're referring to is when I was, I was, my mom is white and Jewish. My dad is black and Christian. And I say that really kind of uh, tongue in cheek in a way, like kind of lightly. Right. But in the end it was interesting because my mom's family was not at all happy about that union. And then I came along and I was really kind of a constant reminder. My grandmother loved me. My grandparents, they had, they cared for me in a, in a, in a general way, but they kept me out. I was, I was unseen. I was unseen by people outside the house. I could occasionally go to their home for, for dinner or here and there, but my father was never invited. And when I would go to their house, my pictures were nowhere to be seen. And my, wow. my white cousin's photos were everywhere. Mine were not. I could never go to weddings. I could never go to bar mitzvahs. My mom would occasionally go without me. And I was always like, why can't I go? And so it was a, it was a tough one. It was when you're thinking about this idea of a lack of inclusion and lack of feeling like you belong in your own home, that's a big one. So yeah, it, it, so resilience was one you had to build because in the end, so my, like I said, my grandmother loved me uh, in her way. She'd come visit, she'd come visit here in Ohio or Columbus, or in Colorado. She'd visit me also in Arizona or wherever I was living. And then she, and, and she was you know, happy about it. Happy that I went to, wanted me to go to law school, pushed me to go to law school to be her little lawyer, as she called it, being from the Bronx. And, and it was one of the things that pushed me. I mean, I, I, I actually am a lot of who I am because of her. So it's for good or for bad or for all the things in between, I am definitely because of her. She was a big, strong force in my life, a positive female force in my life. And she had a lot of strength about her too. But yeah, there was this thing, there was this thing that was always there and I, I never asked about it. So there was one time, this is an interesting story. There was one time I'd gone to Israel kind of on a journey in a way to say, okay, well, is everybody like my family? Are they all like this really? Of course, the answer was no. But I went for about a couple, a couple months and I came back. And I, when I was there, though, I, I, was, I stayed on a kibbutz and I stayed in the Arab sector, which is what they called it. I stayed in these different areas around the country. And when I came back, I was talking to my grandmother on the phone about my experience. It was so amazing. I mean, the, I went to Turkey. They were amazing there. Like I went to all the folks. I was in the Arab sector. The people were amazing. And it just by saying that, it threw her the heck off. She went off the rails when I said that it was, it was, I don't know exactly what I said, but it was something related to the people in the Arab sector and how they were just so nice and kind and how they were so similar to the people that were in the kibbutz that I stayed with. And she is like, what? And went off on me. And then, then it culminated in this statement. And she said, you would be a better Heather if your parents never married. And I thought, oh, what? Wow. I wouldn't even be me. I didn't think that I said that. So we had, it was, like I said, I was in my 20s. So at this point, we are, again, already had a, we had a strong, odd, very strange relationship. And, and I said, okay, and at some point we just, we ended that, but I never forgot it. Like, it'll just go to go with me to my deathbed that she said that to me. It's like, really? Could you say that? So anyway, it through all of that though, I think the thing that pushed me most, and it still does to this day is like this thing that I think many of us struggle with this idea of not being good enough just not being good enough. Many of us have that going on in the back of our heads. We call it imposter syndrome. We call it whatever you want to call it, right? But it's this idea of being like the outsider. So for me, it was always a drive to bring people into my circle. I'm very expansive. I'm just like, come on in. You too. You too. Come in. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything about your lifestyle. Every decision you've ever made, about, I don't have to do that to, in order to be able to include you and bring you around the table to say, you matter. You belong here. And I think that's the gift that my grandmother gave me and the, and the rejection that she gave me. 
So you received that externally from her. How did, how would you, how would you help or coach younger people or really anyone going through a similar uh, situation that is feeling that not good enough? How do they start on their own to make that difference for themselves? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I do talk a lot about reframing. I think reframing is a, is a big tool. Reframing is really just taking kind of irrational thoughts about our circumstances and replacing with rational thoughts. It's if we want to look at it that simply. So in that time during that, I'm going to give you an example in the time during the layoff where I was like, oh my gosh, my world's going to crumble. Like, how am I going to pay my kids tuition? Well, how am I going to pay the mortgage? Are we not going to have a house? Oh my God. Am I ever going to get a job again? And my, I just start going down this major rabbit hole. And then I, 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 so I allow myself to feel that I allow myself to have that time. And then I give myself a cutoff. I call it a switch. So it's a switch in my head. I just visualize a switch. I turn the switch on and off as I choose. And I choose to, I turn, I'd say time, time, time to stop wallowing, time to move forward. Okay. So, yep. uh, Yep. uh, There was this happened and this happened, but I learned a lot and I met some of my best friends and I met, right. I started to go down this list of all of a sudden, all of these things that were so earth shattering become the things that were the bright light for me, as you heard, as I just revealed to you with my story with my grandmother. It's like, she gave me who I am to, she gave me the gift of insight, the ability to say, that's exactly right. That's right there. The thing you you pinpointed earlier, I got that because of what I experienced in my past. So knowing that there's always that kind of people say with the brighter side, right? It's not, but this is not Pollyanna. This is actually, this is what people, this is what therapists use. Therapists use this to help people get through some really traumatic times. And so this idea of flipping the switch, the idea of replacing the irrational with the rational is something you can use. But here's the other thing I think that, there's a couple of things you can use, but one in particular that that has really worked for me. And when I've interviewed other people who have gone through a lot of adversity, even more than mine, they, they talk about this idea of just being able to focus forward. And what I do is I call it focusing on, focusing on a mission that's bigger than myself. And for me, like right now, see this caring leadership thing is for me a global thing. So I'm trying to ex- I'm trying to change the experience for employees around the world, and I can only do that by changing the hearts and minds of the leaders who look who actually are the ones who are supposed to be giving them the care, right? So for me, that's pretty big. That's ma- that's massive. Like, how can one person do that, right? But it, if I continue to focus on that one thing, that is my north star, it makes it so that all the other distractions that happen around me are minimized. So here's an example of that during the pandemic. Uh, the first few weeks, like everybody else, and probably more than anybody else, because my business is fully related to people. So I coach, usually that's going to be in person. I train, that's usually going to be in person before the pandemic. I speak, that's usually in person. So pretty much everything's in person and everything shut down. So basically all but like one coaching client went away, like in that first probably oh, yeah. two months of the pandemic. Yep. And I was freaking the heck out. Yeah, there was no paycheck. I pay myself this is my salary through the work I do. I kill it, right? And then I bring it home. It's just it's the way it is. So I was sitting here going, okay, Heather, this has been like three weeks in and it's enough of the wallowing and the fear. Like it's just enough. The switch is again, the switch. Boop. And I said, you know what? I have, a, I have a deadline. I have a deadline on this manuscript. I wrote The Art of Caring Leadership during the pandemic. I wrote it. I started it in May. Actually, I started in, no, I didn't. I started in April because I had a May 31st deadline. And my, and my, my publisher was going to extend the deadline because of what was happening. And I refused to take the deadline, the, the change in the deadline. I met it. I met it. I met it like a day or two early. And it was because, so then that became my mission. Bigger than like what I was going through at that moment, it was that thing I needed to focus on. So I think that from, that's a very tactical move, but it's a, a super helpful move. And again, almost anybody you, 
you talk to that has been through some stuff, they start to figure out what is that mission? What is that thing that's like out there that doesn't knock you off your, st- your, your, your shoes too much, right? You, you, may, you may wobble, but in the end, you're still kind of right where you're at and you're, and you're focused on that thing. So that's, those, that's another strategy I would say to use if you're someone who's struggling through anything right now. Who in the world says no to an extension? <laughs> As Ron, Ron's writing his own book right now. So he's just looking for his more, way out more if he needs would, one. Yeah. would be great. And, and my, well, students you, would, you, my students would love an extension anytime I offered. I don't know they would ever say no to it. I think it's like the, I think it goes back to this idea of victimhood. Right. I, I refuse it. I just refuse it. So to me, like the pandemic, I mean, I could be like, if I'm sick, if I'm like deadly, I mean, obviously it's different if I'm like deadly ill or I mean, something that's just, wow. Right. But in this case, it was in my head. I had a choice on how I could choose to, how I could move forward or whether I could just get stuck. And I chose not to take in my mind, what I saw as victimhood to use that extension when I in fact could have gotten it done. And I did in fact get it done and done well. So, yeah, I, know, I, I think it's a good Great message, right? Don't just because you have an easy path, maybe that's not the right path, right? And and we like to use the tagline here, do hard things. And so you stepped up and said, I'm gonna do this because I can, right? And so well, I, I think that's a wonderful message. You know, let's let's go back. I'm always fascinated by this that you know, I've been I've lived a life that let's say is privileged. I haven't had a lot of hardship and a lot of adversity. And I, I look at stories like yours, and by the way. One thing that Heather left out, I think if I'm getting this right from reading your book, Heather, the first time you actually went to a family gathering, you were what, 36 years old? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and that family gathering was my grandmother's funeral. That, I mean, that just <laughs> as a child that, that's excluded from all of these things, number one, it had to be very confusing, but number two, you, you want to talk about, you know, setting you up for a lifetime of victimhood. How did you... You know, some people don't come out of that. Some people spend their lifetime in the, stuck in that mode. And how did you find your way out of it? Was it a flip of a switch or were you always kind of that personality of, of I don't know, being strong and resilient? I mean, I think because it happened at such an early age, I gathered the thick skin over time. So I had to keep going, well, at least I'm home with my dad and my dad and I get to watch my favorite Westerns on the television. <laughs> Like I had to kind of be like, well, at least this There's thing reframing. is happening. I was, I was just, I just started that process of the reframe like super early. And, and I would, and this, the flipping of the switch super early. And then even kind of like, you know, on the addiction front, I, I would be like, well, you know, now I get to go to that concert because I don't have to like ask permission or whatever. Like I just, it was, it's interesting. I, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that because that's not something I really, you know, want to go out there too much on. But, but anyway, I learned to smile. I smile a lot. So I smile and grin through things. I realize it made me stronger. And I, I don't know. I don't, you know, when you ask me that, I think about, yeah, I could have easily turned to drugs. I could have easily turned to being an alcoholic. And I purposely now, you just really watch out for stuff. Like I don't take many uh, drugs for pain. Or like if I, if some, if there's something, like I had four kids all naturally. They, I use like a doula for my pain. Like I'm, I'm very funny about drugs because of that, right? So there's certain things I'm like, uh, so I just watch out for because I don't want to be, I, I start to see it. I'm like, there's an attendancy there. Or, or if I sense myself being 
exclusion, exclusionary to somebody. If I feel, if I, I I'll, I'll uh, yeah, that's not right. That, that wasn't right. I need to make sure I bring them in the circle. I need to make sure I include them. So I just am hyper aware. I don't, I wish I could tell you I knew. I mean, I wasn't some like amazingly like straight A, like strong militaristic person who like every teacher would never forget me. I don't think I was that kind of kid. I don't. I just, I think just all of the, the adversity that was around me, I just made a different choice. I, I believe life is full of choices. To, like today I have my shake, but you know, the other day I had some cookies. I mean, this is that I have a choice. <laughs> Everything I do, I have a choice. We got we gotta. Now, you don't have a choice with like, you know, and I'm saying this, we have a choice. Like for example, you don't have a choice whether someone sexually abused you. Like if you have, if they had, that happens, that happens. But after it happens though, we do have a choice on how we respond, on how we look at it, on how quickly it, we keep staying down because of it. So it's the thing that's happening to us. We don't have a choice about that necessarily. It's after it happens, we have a choice on how we respond to it and how we see it. And so, you know, I could have hated my family or despised them. You know, do I have you know some adverse feelings here and there? Yes, I do. I'd be, I would be inhuman if I told you I never did. But I have more compassion and, and pity, to be honest, for them. So... Do you think, would you say the adversity that you've gone through and your ability to recognize and pull yourself out of it or flip the switch, does that lend to your success in adulthood, do you think? In other words, if you hadn't gone through that, do you think you'd be in a different place today? Yes, I definitely think I'd be in a different. I think it absolutely, I'd be in a totally different place. I wouldn't be as successful as I am and as I'm going to be because of it. It's just because I'm going to, I'm can't, here's what's happening. Boom, 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 boom. I just told you about the, the vision, the mission that's bigger than myself. It'll, it'll always be bigger than me. So I'll always be like, right. And so people are like, that's exhausting. You like do so much. You're always, well, that's just what I do. I, I just keep going forward. And I think most of us, again, that go out of it successfully, that come out of adversity successfully do that. We just hit it hard and we're just kind of going forward and that's what we do. So I was, I, I did a post the other day. I was like, I think, you know, I use the word love a lot. I use the word care a lot. I use the word connect deeply a lot because I feel like I have, I can give it unlimited in an unlimited way. And all of us can, I don't see limits to things like maybe other people do. And I don't know, you know, I think it's still related to all of those things. I think it's because you know what it is too. When we talk about resilience, it's this idea of developing mental toughness. So this, once, once you see you're tough once, you see you're tough twice, you're tough over 30, 40, 50 years, right? Now you're like, I'm just tough. Like I can get over this. And so it's a practice, the practiced type of thing then starts to feed your brain this, this message of I can, I've gotten through these things. I can get through this thing too. So. I love it. Yeah. And it's funny that as, as you're talking, I'm, I'm connecting, I'm kind of connecting the dots and I'm sure you have as well that your grandmother cared about you. So you can see that caring relationship that maybe in some sense rescued you, you know, without your grandmother, what would that childhood look like? I mean, you at least had somebody to kind of pull you out of that. Yeah. And I, sometimes I talk to my students and I say, just let people know that they matter. And that is incredibly powerful. So I think we can see that with your, your relationship mm-hmm. with your grandma, that she cared and, and she made you finally Somebody made you feel like you mattered. And I, I just can't overestimate how important that is for, for people that we respect to, to mm-hmm. know that they think that we matter. And I think it goes back to that idea of, of not being good enough and somebody validating that we are good enough. So, I mean, is there anything you would add yeah. to all that? 
Yeah, there were, I mean, there, like I said, my relationship with that grandmother was a very complex one. I had a best friend in college who'd be like, how the heck could you still talk to that family? How could you love that family? I don't understand how you even care about it. And it's like, well, because I understand human nature. Like, I know that she loves me, but she is fighting up her own, she's fighting her own skeleton. She's fighting against her own, like, desire to have her own community see her in a particular way. I understood her human frailty. I still understand that about people. It's important to come from that place. So like even during this stuff with George Floyd, this whole, all this stuff that's happened since then, someone comes to me or whatever, or someone asks me about, about something related to that. And it's like, well, you know, first, the first thing I do is I seek to understand because I, if I can understand where the person's coming from, if I, for me, I can deeply, I can get into their shoes and understand it. Even if I haven't lived that experience, not everybody can do that. I know that I can, because I have, I know that because I live a life, I've lived a life. So I can kind of go, yeah, I can, yep. Yeah, I can kind of see why you may be seeing. I'm not saying it's right. I can see why you might be saying seeing it that way. But we all have a choice on how we show up. So we don't need to speak in, in terms of demonizing people. Because I think that's the wrong way to go. It doesn't give good energy inside of our own, like who we are and, and our being. So let's like get rid of the demonizing language and go into, maybe there's more of a self-reliance that, that comes from me. So there's this aunt, I talk about that at the very beginning of the book, there's this aunt, I don't know if you remember that story by my aunt who, so she is my mom's baby sister. And, and so the one on my grandmother, you know, grandmother's daughter, and she knew that I was kind of on the outside, but when we moved away from Las, uh, from Ohio to Las Vegas and I was nine, she used to send me these big boxes that had eight presents, one for each day of Hanukkah. So she wanted it to continue for me. So, because of course, like I said, the Jewish side of my family. So I would, every year I'd be like, I'd be looking at that box going, I know there's some, I know there's gifts in there. It wasn't just about the gifts though. She did that as a reminder of like, to her to say, I value you. You mean something. You're, you're worth something. I hear you. I see you. You're important, right? These are all the things that she did in that action. And so it's not the gift. It's the, it's what the action or the gifts represented. And so this is where, again, where you're able to say, can I pinpoint what care looks like? And in that action, that was care. She made me feel important, included, and like I belonged. You see, so that's that's where it's so important for us to get this right and to pinpoint behaviors, not thoughts, but what are the behaviors that produce the feeling of care? Let me ask you, going back to leaders and leadership, especially in this remote workforce, because Ron and I get these questions all the time. How do, what are those behaviors? If you have, you know, leaders across the board listening right now, what are some of the behaviors while we are still like this on Zoom and remote that they, you think they could do to show their people that care? Here's the thing I'm, I'm going to tell you. you. You need to show up more, not less right now. And on Zoom, I know it's a pain in the butt. Maybe it doesn't have to be as long. It doesn't have to be an hour meeting, but you need to have that separate time. Here's what I would say. I'd say if you're going to have, let's say, your, your weekly one-on-one or your weekly team meeting or hopefully both, that in between you have kind of a 15-minute check-in, kind of just a, kind of a mental health, kind of a just well-being check-in asking them how they're doing. You know, I, if you particularly, you know, they, there could be a, a you know, sick, sick child at home or a, home, a child home from college and a, dealing with an elderly parent. And there's a lot of things going on in our homes and that are being really highlighted more than they ever were before. But being aware of what that is and, and making sure that you know they, that they are seen, that, that you are aware and that you're there to help remove any barriers that are within your sphere of influence that you can remove for them. 
for example, you know, like if it's this idea of I have someone that's sick or I have to take someone to a doctor's appointment, then you say, you know, go do it, go do it. We know you're going to get work done when you have to get it done. So just go take care of that, you know, showing that flexibility. And the other thing I would say is you can't, you're not with them face to face. In most cases, sometimes you're back to work and so you're able to do social distancing. You can see them, but maybe you have a mask on, right? But I think this idea of meeting them where they're at is important right now. So that looking at them right at the eye at this at the camera is really important because you can connect with them more when you look right at the camera. So what I find is a lot of people are, are looking down like, you know, at the screen like this. And the connection actually happens this way because it feels like you're at least kind of looking at them in their eyes. And so you get that connection there. So I would say like that would be one tip for the Zoom experience, but making sure that that, you know, you you just you're there for them. You sit inside. You don't you don't. It's not about projects, not about processes. It's not about things you want them to achieve for you or the organization. It's all about them. And it's that that's, that doesn't take any money. I mean, this is not rocket science, but it's not it's not easy for a lot of people to do that. To just to sit and be with someone. It's critical. Yeah, especially when they're going through their own internal, you know, struggles and difficulties. So, I, yeah, absolutely. It's funny. We it, it, Most people are uncomfortable with those kind of conversations. I'm glad you kind of highlighted that because that's not easy for everybody to connect with another human being in that way. Even if we don't go real deep, I, I think that especially in, in the workforce, we don't see that a lot. So and I'm, I'm laughing as you're talking about look at the camera. You know, as I do coaching, especially with my students, I say, you got to look at the camera and it's, it's hard, right? You got to look at this little, you know, this, this, I don't know, this light, a camera, it's not a person, right? Sometimes I tell my students tape a picture behind that, that light or that camera to make it look like you're talking to a person. But that, that eye contact is so important to, to connect with people during Zoom. Do you think, Heather, that this is, I mean, is this going to, right now, mental health is so important. And, and as you said, connecting with people probably more than than we did in the past checking in with them do you think this is going to just fade away as we move out of covid is mental health the idea of mental health is a buzzword right now and do you think that is a year down the road are we going to just forget about that uh or is this something that's here to stay well i'm going to say it i'm going to answer two ways i hope not i hope we don't see it go away but number two it won't go away so these, these, the remnants of all of this is not, it's not going anywhere anytime fast. I'm hoping that the, the leaders, those who are in the position where people are looking to them for guidance, those who are looking to them for flexibility, whatever that is, right, that they, that they understand that just because they don't see it anymore, that it still exists. And this idea of leading the whole person, meeting them where they're at in their shoes will still remain just as important. Taking that time, I promise you that that time taken to see someone that way and to try to help them through it in the way you can will make all the difference on what else you, whatever else you need to get done. So when it's time for them to get back to work, they're going to go to the nth degree to get that job done well. And they're going to ask you what else they can do next. Brilliant. Well, Heather, thank you. The Art of Caring Leadership. We've put all of uh, the links that people need in the show notes. Yep, you got it right there. I love <laughs> the cover art, by the way. It's so great. But let's let's sign off here by asking you about failure. We've talked a lot about success today yes. and your successes and where that's come from. But what about when it comes to failure? What is it, one of your biggest failures that you have experienced and what did you learn from it? Or what do you want to share with our, with our listeners? Yeah, so I am some years ago, many years ago, went to law school. 
and uh, practiced law for a couple of years. I went straight into working at it. I graduated ahead of my class by going to Israel, like I talked about earlier. And then I, when I got out, I had a job right away. I did that purposely because I wanted to have a job right away. So I got out, started working, and I started to become a weathering vine, to be honest. But the people in the firm weren't, there was one partner in particular who used to cuss at me if I didn't get something right. She would literally scream across the room with expletives related to what I was writing or what I wasn't doing right. And I let her, I really did let her opinion and what she said when I exited uh, the organization define what that journey would look like after that. So I quit the practice of law after, after that two-year stint of working in that firm that was really miserable. And while I know where I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be where I'm supposed to be right now, I don't know if it was if that was the right thing to do right in that exact moment. Maybe I could have stayed with it longer, tried it, given another chance. Who knows? So I would say that was probably my biggest failure. And and like as I said, you know, I, I think back that now, obviously, I changed the way I see things now, and so I'm able to kind of snap out of it. But I was I was doing a lot of woe is me in and out of slipping out of victimhood, which is why I can't stand it so much. It's a trigger for me. So yeah, that's that's the one I would say that would be the the area that's a trigger point or or a failure point for me, and. Again, knowing what I know now, I know I am where I should be, but I just don't know if that was where I, what I should have done right in the moment. Just kind of exited altogether. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.